If you've ever been to an orchestra, you've probably wondered what the person standing in front of all the instrumentalists is doing with the baton in his hand. When I was a kid, I would always ask my mom, why is he waving a wand in front of them? Is this magic or something like that? And really, the conductor is one of the most important parts of the orchestra, even though he actually doesn't play any instruments. I've always wondered, what exactly is it that a conductor does? And well, before the performance, he's doing a lot to prepare them, to help them practice, telling different sections like the brass section or the woodwinds or the strings, how they should be playing. During this performance, he is doing a lot too to keep everything together. The first thing he really does is indicates the right tempo. That's why he's waving the little stick around or his hands. He's trying to keep everybody on the right tempo. And if everyone didn't know what tempo they were supposed to be on and was just doing their own thing, the orchestra would sound like a mess. Honestly, I've, I've heard orchestras before in college and things like that where one instrument was off and it just ruins the entire performance. So the conductor keeps things on the right tempo. Secondly, he's also conveying a vision for the piece. Sometimes you see these conductors, and I kind of laugh, but they get really into it in their facial expressions, and you know, it looks like they're an air traffic controller or something with how fast they're waving their arms and things like that. And they're really trying to convey the vision before the piece starts and even while he is conducting. He's trying to give the people who are playing that sense that they are supposed to play with. There's some songs that are really slow and he might have a more somber and controlled posture. There's some songs that are exciting and fast and you see him get more and more into it. He's also listening. It's one of the conductor's most important jobs is to listen. I can remember being in elementary school band. I played the trumpet. I knew how to play hot cross buns and that was about it. And having the band teacher listen to all the different pieces play and sometimes she'd say okay trumpets you know you play and for a while I thought blowing my nose sounded better than me actually playing the trumpet but uh, they are listening to each piece and then they're listening to it all together as well that's what I think is so cool about it all the different parts you're hearing then you're hearing it all together to see how it sounds and lastly they are in charge of presenting the piece to others. They often say something about the piece of music that they're about to perform. And at the end of the orchestra, who really gets all the credit? Well, a lot of times it's a conductor. Who are the people that we know? It's people like Mozart and Chopin and Beethoven. Now they wrote the pieces, yes. They're not actually playing any of the instruments. And yet they are the ones holding this entire performance together. We see in our text today, I believe, the sovereign hand of God orchestrating this entire story between Peter and Cornelius. And really, throughout the entire book of Acts, I could have taken any one of these sermons and preached on the sovereignty of God. But I think we especially see it in this sermon. We see God at work in two completely different people's lives who have never met before, who would have no reason, really, to meet or interact. But he uses an angel, he uses his spirit to communicate to both of them, to bring them together, and to, share, to have Peter share the gospel with Cornelius. But it's not just a simple conversion story. It's great that Cornelius and his family are saved, but this text is actually monumental to how we understand the book of Acts. In fact, 
God can work however he wants, but he chose to work through Peter sharing the gospel with Cornelius so that the Gentiles could be saved and be inducted into the church. And if it was not for that, you and I wouldn't be saved. I don't think any of us in here really have any Jewish heritage. If you do, I don't know about it. We would all be considered Gentiles. So even as we read Acts 10, yes, God could have shared the gospel with us in many other ways, but this is how the gospel came to us. And it's an important part of the book of Acts. And just like a conductor keeps the orchestra together, works with all the individual parts, keeps things in the right timing, the right sound, everything, God is working in individual people's lives every time a person is saved. It's a miracle, I believe, every time a person accepts the gospel, whether we realize it or we don't. And we see in this passage God acting as the divine conductor, and everything points back to him. And sometimes we miss that, I think, even as we look at salvation. It's a beautiful story of a Gentile family who would have been considered outside of the Jewish tradition, who repents of their sin, receives the gospel, and becomes part of the family of God. And this event is so important. In fact, if you look back in Acts chapter 1, we looked at this several months ago, a few months ago. The disciples ask Jesus, they say, hey, when are you going to bring the kingdom? And Jesus says, you don't need to worry about the kingdom right now. But instead, what you should worry about right now is that you're going to be my witnesses. And where did he say they're going to be witnesses to? Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Your Bible might say the uttermost parts of the earth. We've seen the gospel go to Jerusalem, right? The Holy Spirit came down at Pentecost. 3,000 people were saved. And then throughout Acts chapter 1 to Acts chapter 7, we continue to see the gospel in Jerusalem. People saved, Jews saved, inside the city of Jerusalem. And then what happens? Stephen dies, the church is persecuted, and they're pushed out to where? Judea and Samaria. So we see the gospel go there too. And the Christians think Samaria, they're like only half Jews. They're considered unclean. But the gospel goes to them. But there's a third group. It's to the ends of the earth. And really from Acts 10 to Acts 28, this is the last final section, even though it's 18 chapters long, we see the gospel go to the ends of the earth. It's such an important process for us to understand that when Jesus says, you'll be my witnesses to the ends of the earth, he means it. We don't see them necessarily at the end of Acts go to all, you know, go to the United States or China. But in the modern world for that time, Paul went on all these missionary journeys around Turkey, Asia Minor, all these different cities and pushing the gospel out even to Rome. And if it was not for that, the gospel would not be going out to the ends of the earth. And so as we look at this passage, the story we all know, I think, pretty well. But it reminds me of a problem that we all have today. Sometimes we don't like the plan of God. We can recognize, yes, God is in charge. He's the conductor. He's working everything together for good, right? That's all of our favorite verses. God works all things together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. But sometimes we don't like his plan. Sometimes we don't think his plan is what we need. 
How many of us, if we would plan our lives out, we would plan suffering in our lives or all the hardships that we go through? You might think, well, I wouldn't have planned that out. Yet that is part of God's plan. How many of us would accept that God's plan has us share the gospel with those people we really don't like? We really don't want to interact with. I can remember being a camp counselor and you're kind of looking to see what kids are going to be in your cabin. And all the kids, and I, and I love them and I enjoyed spending time with them, but all the kids who had behavior issues or, you know, different social issues, I felt like they all ended up in my cabin at some point. And they were the kids that I was in charge of sharing the gospel with that week. And I can remember thinking, this isn't what I would have picked if I was in charge. Yet it's good and it's part of God's plan. God puts people in our lives to share the gospel with that we may not have even thought of. In fact, so many times I can remember, even now, praying, God, would you give me someone to share the gospel with? And then that next day I passed three or four people that I could have easily shared the gospel with but I never gave it a thought or I didn't want to. Sometimes it's hard to accept the plan of God when it includes difficult circumstances, difficult people, difficult situations. But we should truly believe that God is the master conductor and he's working all of this together for his glory and our good. That's what we see in this passage. Peter was the opposite of Cornelius and Cornelius was not a bad Person. In fact, he's a very good person, as we're going to see. But even for Peter to talk to Cornelius would have meant that he was unclean, that he would have needed to be cleansed ceremonially. Yet Cornelius was the man that God told Peter to share the gospel with. And so what I want us to see this morning is this. The plan of God calls us to share the gospel with all people. We're going to see the plan of God put on display and ultimately it tells us that we're going to share the gospel with all people. Now that doesn't mean that you individually have to share the gospel with everyone, but you're called to witness to others. You're called to share the gospel with others. And all of us as a church, we're called to share the gospel with everyone, not just the people we like, not just the people who vote Republican, not just the people who like the Chicago bears. There's not very many of those anyways. God calls us to share the gospel with all people that was especially true for Peter, and it's true for us today. So we're focusing on the plan of God. I want us to see four aspects of the plan of God in Acts 10. And the first one is this. The plan of God reveals his sovereignty. The plan of God reveals his sovereignty. And you might say, well, duh, of course. He had to be sovereign to have this plan that's orchestrated. Yes, but in this passage, we specifically see how everything is working to God's plan because God is sovereign. Look at verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. So we introduced this man named Cornelius. He was a Gentile. He was probably at least descendant from slaves that were freed by the Romans. That's why he was part of the Italian cohort. He's a centurion. He's in charge of a hundred soldiers. You know, centurion comes from the word century means a hundred. So he's a Roman officer. He's part of this cohort. He's a pretty important figure, at least in that area. And people know about him, too. He lives in Caesarea, which was named after Caesar. It was an important Gentile city administratively to the empire. It had a big harbor there as well. So a lot of people were coming in and out of the city. 
So it's a big deal for Rome, and it's a big deal for this guy to be in this city. But we look at verse 2, and we see people know about this guy. He says, it says, A devout man who feared God with all his household gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. And so while I talk about sharing the gospel with difficult people today, Cornelius was not necessarily a difficult person. He was, by the world standards, a very good person. It says, first of all, he was a devout man. He feared the Lord. It emphasizes his godliness, his devotion to the Lord. We read earlier, the fear of the Lord is what? The beginning of all wisdom. Cornelius knew what it meant to fear God, even though he didn't know Jesus Christ yet. And even though he wasn't a Jew, it's made very clear in this passage that he is a Gentile. He was a devout man. It says he feared God with all his household. Cornelius was a godly family man. He led his family in fearing and worshiping the Lord. Now, there's some confusion over this because, not to spoil things, but later we're going to see Cornelius get saved with his entire household. And some people think, okay, if the dad gets saved, then everybody else gets saved automatically. And that's not true. But what does this show? Cornelius was a faithful father and husband, and he led his family well to fear God. And so when Peter comes, he says, hey, everybody gather around. You're going to listen to this guy because he is sent from God. And I believe every single one of those people who are saved did so the same as Cornelius. They repented of their sins personally. They trusted in the work of Christ. So we see he led his entire household well. He gave alms generously to the people. He's a generous person. We talked a little bit about almsgiving earlier in Acts. It was important for the Jewish men especially to do this. And Cornelius did this even though he wasn't a Jew. Why did he do this? Because he was generous. He would give money. He would give other things to people as gifts. And then lastly, he prayed continually to God. And don't miss that. Don't just look over, oh yeah, he prayed. No, he prayed, and that is very important in this text, as we're going to see in a couple verses. So Cornelius is a good person. He's not a Christian yet, though. And that's made it clear in this text. We see in verse 3, about the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw a vision, in a vision, an angel of God come to him and say, Cornelius. So he's praying on the, says the ninth hour. This would have been about 3 p.m. in the afternoon. And this was a customary time for people to pray. Now, one of the things that Luke shows in both the Gospel of Luke and in Acts is that oftentimes messengers of God come to people while they're praying. I'm not saying you're going to see an angel when you're praying. I don't think you're going to see an angel when you're praying. But this is what happens in Luke and Acts. That while Peter's praying, God, or while Cornelius is praying, God chooses to speak to him. And ask yourself the question, why does God send an angel? In the rest of Acts, God sends a spirit to speak to people. But was Cornelius saved at this point? Did he have the spirit? Well, no, he didn't. So God sent an angel. I think that's at least part of trying to figure that out. Because who does God send to speak to Peter? He uses his spirit actually in a vision. But we'll talk about that in a few moments. He sends an angel to Cornelius, a messenger from God. That was the angel's functions. They were to be messengers from God. And he simply says, Cornelius, and it says in verse 4, and he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? So Cornelius sees this angel and he's very afraid. Now, some commentaries that I read were like, why was Cornelius afraid? 
Well, because he saw an angel. I think that's why he was afraid, because he saw an angel while he was praying, and it knew who Cornelius was. I mean, I think I would be afraid if I was praying and I saw an angel that said my name as well. So I don't think we have to really beat ourselves up trying to figure out why Cornelius was afraid. There's also, I think, a sense of awe here, though, too, that he's kind of taken back by this experience. Notice he recognizes not that this angel is God, but that this angel is from the Lord, that this message is from God. And he said to the angel says to him, your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. This is a really cool picture. Another couple ways you could understand what he means by memorial. Some translations will actually say a sacrifice to God. And it really has the idea of a burnt offering with smoke ascending to heaven. That's why he says your prayers have ascended to heaven as a memorial. Think about this. Cornelius was not a Jew, yet he still had his prayers and his alms heard by by God like a sacrifice. Even though he could not sacrifice, God recognized these things like a sacrifice because he was faithful to God in giving and in prayer. Now we're going to make this very clear as we look at Cornelius. His works did not save him. He was not saved because of his works. We're going to see him later repent and believe the gospel. But yet God saw his faithfulness, his devoutness. He saw him praying and the angel wants to communicate that. Your prayers have been heard by God like an offering, like smoke ascending to heaven. And so as part of God's divine plan, he's going to use Cornelius to hear the gospel. He says, and now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He's lodging with Simon the Tanner who is in the house by the sea. We've seen this actually in chapter nine. If you can remember back eight weeks ago, this is where we left Peter as he was um, in Joppa. He was he did those different miracles in Acts chapter nine at the end. And part of why those stories are there is to show us why Peter was in the area. So then Cornelius sends after the angel departs, he calls two of his servants and a devout soldier. So three men who we really trust to go and find Peter. And it says, and he related everything to them and sent them to Joppa. We then pick up in verse nine with Peter. So the first part of this, we see God sovereignly working in the life of Cornelius. He's praying. He has this angel that comes to him and tells him to call Peter. Verse 9 actually tells us that the messengers are on their way. So they're on their way to find Peter. And then we drop into where Peter is. And it says, Peter went up to the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. So notice Peter is praying as well. This is about noon. And he's up on the housetop of where he was staying at Simon the Tanner, probably because he wanted to be somewhere in private. Oftentimes that's where people would go if they wanted to pray in private. It says, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. And as they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. Now, this is kind of an interesting way for Peter to receive his vision. He's hungry. He wants something to eat. And so he kind of takes a nap. I don't know about you. I've had a couple times where I've been really hungry. And right before dinner, I've fallen to sleep. I, don't, I didn't dream what Peter dreamt. And I don't think I received a vision from God. But it's an interesting set of circumstances that happens to Peter. A trance, by the way, is just some kind of vision um, that Peter is having here. 
So as he falls into this divine vision, notice what he sees. And saw the heavens opened up and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. So this giant white sheet, and your translation might say something else, but is being descended from heaven. And what is really represented there is almost every living animal is on this sheet. So it's not just unclean animals that are on this sheet that's falling down from heaven, but it's also clean animals as well. It's almost every type of animal that is represented there. So Peter sees both clean and unclean. Now the Israelites, and this is important to understand, they were commanded not to eat unclean animals. What were these animals? They'd be things like camels, rabbits, which I wouldn't want to eat a camel anyways, pigs, eagles, vultures, rats, and lizards. I wouldn't want to eat a rat or a lizard either. But all these things are on this blanket that falls down from heaven. And as this falls from heaven, there comes a voice to Peter, and it says, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Now, some would say that word kill might actually mean to sacrifice and eat, which just eating these animals alone would make him unclean, but sacrificing them was especially looked down upon. And Peter, like Peter kind of often does throughout the Gospels, he doesn't want to do this. In fact, there's a strong negation here. Peter says, by no means, Lord, I have never eaten anything that is uncommon or, or that is common or unclean. So why does Peter say no? Well, there's a couple different reasons, maybe. Number one, Peter could think he's just being put to the test by God. That God is putting him to the test and saying, hey, are you really going to eat these animals that are unclean? We also see, and Peter's changed a lot from the Gospels, we also see that sometimes when Jesus would say things to Peter, Peter wouldn't believe him. You know, Jesus says, hey, I'm going to go suffer and die on the cross, and then three days later I'm going to rise again. And Peter says, no, you're not. And then Jesus, Peter says, I'm never going to leave you, Lord. I'm never going to forsake you. And Jesus says, well, actually, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster close. And Peter says, no, I'm not. And so it's a little bit within Peter's nature to not believe God when God is communicating with him. But notice what God says. It says, And a voice came to him a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common or unclean. God has made these animals right to eat. And so he's saying, Peter, don't call them unpure, unclean. Notice also, it says, And this, voice, or, and this happened three times, and the thing was taken up to heaven. Why did this happen three times? I think in honesty, we really can't know for sure. But I think a very good speculation is that Peter denied Christ three times. Then at the end of John, Jesus says, Peter, feed my sheep three times. And so three is an important number just in the Bible, but also with Peter. So there could be some allusions back to that. But I'm not going to weigh too much into that necessarily. We see after three times the sheep goes back up to heaven. Now look at verse 17. It says, Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision he had seen might mean, behold, three men who were sent by Cornelius, having made an inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate. So we see that Peter is inwardly perplexed. He's very confused. 
And I think we would be too if we saw a giant sheet fall down from heaven with all these different animals on it. I think we would be very confused as well. And this is also going against everything Peter had ever thought as a Jew. And so these men come to his door while he's confused about this, and they're going to answer these questions for Peter. As he is pondering the vision, it says these men come to the door. They ask for Peter to Simon the Tanner. And it says, while he's pondering this in verse 19, behold, the spirit said to him. So this is where we see the spirit communicating with Peter again, because Peter's a believer. It says, behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. So Peter's starting to get a little bit more clarity that somehow his vision is connected to the three men who come. Again, just notice the sovereignty of God. It's not hard to see. God's working in Cornelius' life, telling him that he's going to meet Peter. Peter has this vision, and right when the vision is over, who is knocking at the door? It's the three messengers from Cornelius. God is working all these things together to accomplish what he intends. And so Peter goes downstairs. He says that I'm the one you're looking for. They tell him that pretty much what we've already read in the passage that Cornelius, who's a God-fearing man, sent them to find Peter. And Peter goes with them. And so we see in these first several verses, especially the sovereignty of God as part of his plan. This isn't just something that God is working out right in these couple days. God's actually been at work throughout this entire process. In Peter's life, he's the one who brought Peter to Joppa, and that's where we see him heal the two different people before in Acts chapter 9, and that's what puts him in the area. So really, God has been directing Peter to this moment. For, for Cornelius, it's really been his entire life of being a devout and God-fearing man that God's been working in his life, preparing him to receive the gospel. And it's important for us to remember this, that everyone who receives the gospel does not receive it by accident. God doesn't make any mistakes. God doesn't say, well, I didn't mean for you to receive it, but you're just going to be saved anyways. That's all part of God's plan. It doesn't mean that we don't have a responsibility to repent and believe the gospel. It does. But God is the one orchestrating this. God is the one who's put all these pieces together. And we see it so clearly in this passage we often doubt God's plan. We think our plans are better. We grow anxious when things don't go, don't go according to our plan. Have you ever felt that? You put a plan together. Maybe it's something really small. Maybe it's something really big. And you get frustrated and angry as you're working on it. Alicia and I were working on wedding invitations yesterday. And we're like, you know what? We're going to save some money and we're going to design our own wedding invitations. And it was like whichever one of us was working on the wedding invitation we just started getting more frustrated. So I'd be working on it, and I'd try to move something, and it'd just go completely scrambled, and I'd try to put it together again. And then she'd you know, work on something on the computer, and then I'd kind of get more relaxed, and then she'd start getting more frustrated with it. And things aren't going to plan. I, I told her, I said, we we're supposed to be done with this by now. you know. So the moral of that story is... If you're ever making invitations for something, just buy them from someone else. Like It's so much easier than trying to make them yourself. But we get frustrated when things go, don't go according to our plan. But we have to remember that it's not about things working out the way we have designed them. It's 
about things working out the way God has planned them. And we know all things are going to work according to his plan. Sometimes that's way harder than just a wedding invitation not working out right. Sometimes that means trusting God when things don't go well in a hard circumstance, when things aren't what you imagined. When God calls you to speak to that difficult person, you trust that it's part of God's plan and he is, not maybe, not hopefully, he is going to accomplish what he intends. So do you trust God's sovereign plan? And are you willing, like Peter, who we can see in this passage, Peter is a little hesitant to go. He's a little hesitant to understand what God has for him, but he still goes because it's part of God's plan. Notice with me, secondly, God's plan is not only revealing of his sovereignty, but it includes all people. God's plan includes all people. Notice with me the end of verse 23 into verse 24. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and his close friends. So you see Peter going to Caesarea. He's calling together his household. By the way, his household wasn't just his family. It was also his close friends, also probably the people who were working for him as well. So this was really a larger group of people than just Cornelius' wife and their three kids. But it was probably a large number of people that he's called together. Now in verse 25 it says, When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. Why does Cornelius do this? Well, some people say he's just trying to pay Peter respect, but we'll also see how Peter responds in a second. Cornelius, I believe, thought that Peter was a divine messenger from God, and therefore he fell down and worshipped him. And notice what Peter says. He says in verse 26, But Peter lifted up him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And I'm not going to make too much of this, but Peter, who's an apostle, who saw Christ, who wrote books in the New Testament, did not think too highly of himself. First of all, he was just a human, but he was a simple man who struggled with faith, obviously, who made mistakes, but was used by God to share the gospel. And all those times when you share the gospel with someone, remember that, that everyone in history that's been used by God has been a simple man or woman, but they've been used by God in a mighty way. So Peter recognizes, hey, I'm just a man I'm not some kind of divine messenger that you need to worship. In verse 27, and as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. So he sees all of these people there. And again, this is probably a larger group than even Peter thought it would be. And notice what Peter says. He said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of any other nation. Now imagine if I walked into your house for a pastoral visit or something, you invited me over for dinner, and I said, hey, I'm happy to be here, but you know it's kind of unclean for me to be here, right? Like, I really shouldn't be doing this. You'd probably be like, well, thanks, you know? (laughs) But Peter, what I think he's doing is trying to show the importance of this moment, that this actually wasn't a normal thing for Jewish people to do. Peter was risking being unclean just by being in their house. But why was he there? We'll look at the rest of that verse. But God has shown me that I should not call any person uncommon or unclean. So what he's really saying is my background, my tradition, my upbringing would say that I should not be here right now. 
But God has shown me that you and I are equal, that we are all the same, that I should not call you unclean. That has a lot of effects on how we even view people that are different from us, that have different ethnicities, races, that talk differently from us, that have different backgrounds than us. The gospel of God is for all people. That doesn't mean everyone in the world is going to be saved, but it does mean that Jesus is building a church of every tribe, tongue, and nation. And we should never discriminate because of that. He says, so when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent me. Peter actually doesn't know why he's there. He just knows God told him to go. He probably has an idea, but he actually doesn't know why he's there in this place. So look at what Cornelius says. And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house about the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing. He says he's in bright clothing. We know from what Luke says that it's an angel. And said, Cornelius, your prayers have been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon the Tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we all are here in the presence of God to hear all that you have commanded, been commanded by the Lord. What's interesting about this is Cornelius doesn't even really know why Peter is there either. He just knows that God told him to call for Peter. But God didn't tell Cornelius, hey, tell Peter to come and preach the gospel to you. He tells Peter, well, an angel talked to me. He told me that my prayers have been answered by God. And he said to go sin for you. And at that moment, I think Peter finally understands why he's there. At least that's what Luke records for us. Look at verse 34 with me. It says, And Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand truly that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right and acceptable to him. The gospel of God is for all people. Now you might ask, why did God then choose the nation of Israel? We see in the Old Testament, God has chosen Israel specifically. And by the way, I don't think he's done with Israel either. He's going to continue to keep his promises to Israel even into the future. God did choose Israel as the promised nation. We're even going to see in a few moments that that's how God chose to reveal the gospel. Like Paul said, to the Jew first and also the Gentile. But that doesn't mean the Jews are better than the Gentiles. What Peter is showing is that God doesn't show partiality, but really everyone in every nation who is found righteous by God can be one of his children. That doesn't mean that Cornelius earned his salvation at all, but God chose Cornelius especially for this moment. And I would imagine that Cornelius being a devout and faithful man helped him share the gospel after he was saved. This is a huge and radical moment in the early church. Like I said, Cornelius wouldn't have been a hard person to interact with, but he would not have been an ethnicity, he would not have been racially as a Gentile, a person they would have thought needed to hear the gospel because of the divisions there. The gospel is going to the Gentiles who are not viewed as God's people, but yet as we read the rest of the New Testament, we see that they're given an equal standing with the Jews. As I said earlier, I don't think there's any of us here that are truly Jews at all. So if it wasn't for this moment, we wouldn't have understood the gospel. This is part of how we have the gospel today. And in our church culture today, 
We don't really struggle with the, with the gospel going to Gentiles because we're all Gentiles. And I think we're getting better about the gospel going to other races, even though we've had issues in our country and within world history before of having racial diversity. And there's probably still struggles we have with that. But there can be times when we struggle to understand that the gospel is for everyone. You meet different people as you're going different places in the store. I've been trying to work out a little bit more. So I've been going to the gym and meeting different people there. And despite whatever race they are, sometimes it's hard to understand that whatever background they come from, whatever language they use, whether or not I think they'll ever really accept the gospel, that God calls me to share the gospel with others who aren't like me, who didn't grow up like me. Maybe there's people you're called to share the gospel with, even in your own family, who you think, I don't really like that person. I don't really know how to interact with that person well. And maybe God is using you to share the gospel with them. We can ask ourselves, do we truly share the gospel with others who aren't like us? And do we appreciate the beautiful unity that we have in the body of Christ? Not everyone in the body of Christ looks and acts like us. There's probably people, not just in our church, but in other churches, who have different thoughts about the way things should be than you do. And that's okay. There's other churches that do things we probably don't appreciate or that we wouldn't do. I'm not saying we should sacrifice doctrine or things like that. But within the body of Christ, there are people who have different backgrounds, who like different music, who cheer for other football teams, who don't even watch football, who are part of the body of Christ. And it is truly a beautiful thing. As I was preaching on Revelation a couple weeks ago, I thought about what is it going to be like on that day when we're worshiping God with all these multitudes of angels and every creature is there, but you're standing next to people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And it doesn't mean I think the whole world is going to be saved, but I do think that every ethnicity is going to be represented in some way there. If you've ever either been on a missions trip or seen videos of people in Africa or in China singing maybe even the same songs that we sing, but in their own culture, it's truly a beautiful thing. We can appreciate diversity in the body of Christ and how the gospel goes to everyone. So God's plan includes all people. It also, thirdly, centers on the gospel. This is where Peter starts to share the gospel with Cornelius. In verse 36, as for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism of John, that proclaimed. So this gospel was first given to Israel. It's not because they're better than anyone, but they were God's chosen people. It was preached to the Jew first, as Paul would say. It was sent to Israel and then preaching good news of peace through Christ Jesus. It's so interesting. He talks about the gospel. That's the word for the gospel in Greek, this good news, euangelion. That's the word for the gospel. It's good news. But it's a gospel of peace. How is it a gospel of peace? It gives us peace with God. It gives us peace with others. Now, you might ask, Jesus says that I've not come to bring peace but division. Well, the gospel divides us with those who are not saved. The gospel divides brother and sister and son and father because there's a distinction between those who are saved 
and unsaved. But within the body of Christ, you have peace with God. You have peace with others as well. And I think that's what Peter's trying to show here. It's the, it's the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. It's God's gospel, but it's a gospel that is made possible through what Christ has done in his life. And what did Christ do? Well, he starts to explain that. He says, you yourselves know what happened throughout all of Judea. Peter's saying this was actually pretty common knowledge, what happened to Jesus. Cornelius had heard about all of this. And he starts explaining Jesus' life. Beginning in Gal- from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaims, so starting with his baptism, it says in verse 38, it, it says in verse 38, yes, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. So beginning at his baptism, we see the Spirit descend on Jesus like a dove. Jesus is anointed by the Spirit. He's God, yes, but the Spirit worked in Christ's life. Starting with his baptism, and then it continued throughout his earthly life. It says he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Jesus did what was good. He healed people. He cast out demons, which is specifically mentioned here. That's not all that he came to the earth to do, but he did come to the earth and he did those things as part of his ministry. In verse 39, and we are witnesses of all he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. So Peter saw this as a witness. That's how he is an apostle. He witnessed the things of Christ. But then it says they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. Peter's used this phrase before in Acts 5. It says in Deuteronomy, cursed be a man who is hung on a tree. Christ took on the curse of sin for us when he died on the cross, when he died on the tree. So he's cursed. He's seen as cursed by God. But notice also he's seen as favored by God. How? Because God raised him on the third day and made him to appear. He's trying to show Jesus took on the curse of sin, but Jesus also has favor with God and God raised him from the dead. Was Jesus God? Yes. Did God raise him from the dead? Yes. It's how the Trinity works together. And made him to appear. So not only was he raised from the dead, he appears after his resurrection it says not to all people but to those who have been chosen by god as witnesses i think what he's showing here this isn't talking about salvation but this is the people jesus saw after he rose from the dead remember he saw his disciples he didn't see thomas at first and thomas is saying well i don't believe he was risen from the dead i'm not going to believe until i touch his hands and his side and then jesus appears to him and he touches his hands and his side but jesus didn't appear to everyone but he appeared to many people who Peter says were chosen as witnesses. So while I think this text shows us the sovereignty of God, I don't think this is talking about some kind of, you know, I don't think this verse is alluding to Calvinism necessarily and saying that they were chosen as witnesses. I think this is talking about the disciples who were chosen to be apostles because they saw Christ's life, death, and resurrection. It says, and he commanded us to preach to the people and testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. So they're preaching the gospel. Yes, all these things that Peter has said, but they also are talking about the judgment that is to come. Now, I read a couple weeks ago in John 3, where Jesus says, hey, I didn't come to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through me. And that is true. 
in his first coming. Christ came in his first coming to save the world. The world was already condemned, but he came to save the world. But what Peter is showing here is that Christ will come again. And when he comes again, he will judge the living and the dead. And he says, we've been appointed to preach this. That's the truth of the gospel. I'm, I am not a person who thinks you should preach the gospel to people by, telling, by trying to scare them into salvation, saying, hey, if you don't get saved, you're going to spend forever burning in hell. I think that's true, but I don't want people to just be scared into salvation. I've met too many people who were coerced, as you might say, into an emotional decision about salvation because they were scared by someone. And I don't really think that's how we should share the gospel. I think we should share the gospel by showing someone what it means to have a relationship with Jesus Christ and how that can change their life. But, I say all that, but there is a truth in what Peter is saying, that Jesus will come again as the judge of the living and the dead. And this motivates Peter's sharing of the gospel. You do tell people, yes, that if you don't, Except Christ, we believe you'll spend eternity separated from God in hell. We don't try to scare them with that, but that is the truth. But I honestly think that motivates us as Christians more to share the gospel. Why? Because we understand that. Because we know that Christ is coming to debt again, and he will judge the living and the dead. It's all part of God's plan, yes. But Peter has this on his mind as he's preaching this gospel to them. Verse 43, to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him and receive forgiveness of sins through his name. Everything is pointing to Christ. Throughout all the Bible, throughout everyone who speaks of Christ that is a true prophet, they point to Christ that through him you can repent and believe and have forgiveness. So at the center of God's plan, what Peter shows us is the gospel. And it's not a watered-down version of the gospel. It's not long. The gospel, I think, is simple. But it is the gospel. And what does he say? He speaks of Christ's life, his death, his sacrifice on the cross, his resurrection, how he's coming again, and how he offers salvation to all who would repent and believe. His plan centers on the gospel. And why is this important for us to remember? Because oftentimes when we want to share the gospel with people, when we want to have people join our church, we think it needs to be the gospel and they accept our politics or and they like our music or they do everything like we would do it. And the center of God's plan is not just our preferences, but it is the gospel of God. It is who Jesus Christ is. Do you understand the gospel? If you're a Christian, do you understand the gospel do you understand the gospel well enough to communicate it to someone else? Some people are afraid to share the gospel because they're afraid they don't know enough about the Bible to share it with someone. But all you really have to tell someone is how God saved you. Your testimony of how God worked in your life. And you might say, well, my testimony is not really exciting. That's good. Just tell them what God has done in your life. Be thankful God has saved you from more suffering and sin that you could have been part of. Your testimony is an important part of your life. It's the most important part of your life. And it is the best tool you can use to share the gospel with someone else. You might say, well, I can't explain all those terms like justification and propitiation and all those things. 
That's okay. You probably don't need to when you're sharing the gospel with someone. You need to help them understand what Peter just said. This is who Jesus is. This is what he did on the cross. He rose again. And if you believe in him, repent of your sins, believe in him, you can spend eternity with him as your savior. You can talk about how God did that in your life. The plan of God centers on the gospel. And we remember as well that God is the one that is working throughout all of this. He is orchestrating this. He's the one who sent Jesus. You might think as you're witnessing to someone, man, I could never share the gospel with that person. That would just be too hard. Well, actually, God has already sent Jesus to the earth to live a perfect life and die on the cross for us and raise him from the dead. It sounds like the hard part is already done. God did all of that. The hard part of Christ coming to the earth, living a perfect life, all of that has already been accomplished. And we can be faithful to share the gospel with others, knowing that he's coming again. And so Peter's faithful to share the gospel with those who aren't like him because it's part of the plan of God. And we finally just briefly see their transformation. The plan of God results in powerful transformation. Look at verses 44 through 48. And while Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. So it's while he's still speaking, we actually don't get to hear the conclusion of Peter's message. Now, that doesn't mean y'all can walk out before I'm done preaching, okay? You still need to stay and hear the conclusion. But while this is happening, the Spirit comes down. And I think this is really important for us to understand. Peter doesn't get to a prayer of salvation. I don't think it's wrong necessarily to have someone repeat a prayer after you. I think it's okay. But I don't think someone has to pray a prayer of salvation in order to be saved. I've talked to some of you. I have, I have friends. You may not know the exact date you were saved. It's not about that objective date. Oh, this is when I was saved. It is the fact that you've put your faith and trust in Christ. You've repented of your sins. You've accepted a relationship with him. And so why do I think this is so cool? Because I think this is what happened. As Peter is preaching, these people realize, man, I'm a sinner. Jesus came to the earth to take away my sin debt. And as he's preaching this, they repent and believe and the Holy Spirit comes down on them. And it was before Peter even got to the end of his sermon, before he even gave his conclusion. It was while he was still speaking. I think that's so cool. That this transformation starts to take place and the Holy Spirit descends on them. And notice, as it descends, it says in verse 45, And the believers from among the circumcised who had come out with Peter were amazed because the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. This is an important moment, which we'll talk about here in a second, that the Holy Spirit is brought down on the Gentiles as well. They receive the Holy Spirit. Why are they so amazed? <coughs> For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Now, wait a second. Does that mean that you're not truly saved if you don't speak in tongues? No. I actually think this is a significant moment and that God is marking this moment with these sign gifts. Where else did we see something like this happen? It's when the Samaritans heard the gospel in Acts 8. Where else did we see something like this happen? When the Jews heard the gospel in Acts 2. What did I say at the beginning of the sermon? You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. 
I think it's marking those three significant events with these sign gifts. It was part of God's plan for this time. Yes, it confirmed to Peter and to those who were with them, hey, these people have received the Spirit. And I don't think those gifts are for today. But I'm not going to labor on that anymore. In verse 47, Peter says, Can anyone withhold water from baptizing these people who receive the Holy Spirit just as we have? He's talking about water baptism as a sign of salvation. Did he say, who can withhold water? Who can stop them from being baptized so they can be saved? No, they were already saved. So why does he say this? I think he's showing the connection between baptism and salvation. And that connection is there. It is important that baptism is the sign that you have become a Christian. It doesn't mean you're saved by baptism, but it means Christians are commanded to follow the Lord in baptism. And we see in Acts that most people, when they're saved, are baptized right away. I'm not saying that's how we should do it. I think there's wisdom in having interviews and things like that, making sure a person understands salvation, and then having it be part of the church. But it does happen this way in Acts, that they're baptized right away after they're saved. In verse 48, And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked him to remain for some days. We see this wonderful salvation at work in Cornelius and his family. Like I said earlier, his family was not saved because Cornelius was saved. His family was saved because like Cornelius, as Peter is preaching, they repent of their sins and believe the gospel. We see this wonderful salvation process here in Acts 10. And while we can give Peter credit throughout this for sharing the gospel, we see that it's part of the plan of God. Charles Spurgeon said this, My looking to Jesus brings me joy and peace, but it's God's looking to Jesus which secures my salvation. We can look to Jesus as Christians. We can find inner joy and peace through the salvation we, he, that he offers. But ultimately, why are we saved? Because God looked down on Jesus and said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. And he said, There is not a penalty, there is not a price that's too much for me to send my own Son. In Romans 8, God, who did not spare his own Son, but sent him to die on the earth. God blessed the world. God loved the world when he sent Christ to die for us. And we see God, even here in Acts 10, as the beautiful conductor of this orchestra of salvation. And I'm not trying to make too much of this, but God is at work in every part, in every person's heart that is there. He is working in them. He's working in this situation to accomplish what he has intended. That is Cornelius being saved. And really, Acts 10 is part of the larger storyline of God's gospel how it went from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth so that it could come to us. If you're saved here this morning, it's because God has been at work in your heart. He put people into your life so that you could know and understand the gospel. You might say, my testimony is not that exciting. That's okay. It's exciting because it's part of God's plan. I was saved when I was six. My dad led me to the Lord. 
There was nothing really exciting about that except for the fact that I was I asked him about it because I saw someone being baptized and I thought my pastor was drowning them. That's the most exciting part of my salvation testimony, but yet it is beautiful because God is the one working in it. Whether you were saved from a long life of sin or you were saved as a young child like I was, God put all the pieces into your life so that you could be saved. And it's all part of his master plan of the gospel so that when we see him in heaven, we can praise him and worship him forever. There's no one else that exists that could design this master plan like God does. And this passage is just a part of that. So as we close this morning, like I said, don't skip my conclusion. As we close this morning, ask yourself these three questions. Has God worked in your life? And I trust he has. I don't have any doubts about that. I trust he has worked in your life. But it's important for us to ask ourselves, how has God worked in my life? How did he bring me to salvation? It can be a wonderful thing to consider your own testimony. How God saved you. We can be thankful for that. As we become a Christian, sometimes we think, okay, I'm going to think less about my sin and become a better person. No, as I become a Christian, yes, I'm trying to grow in Christ, but I start to see just how sinful I really was and just how much grace it took for God to save me. So how has God worked in your life? Secondly, who can you share the gospel with? You might say, well, I don't really like that person. That's okay. We didn't say you had to like them. We said you had to share the gospel with them. Who in your life can you share the gospel with? Maybe it's difficult family, difficult friends. Maybe it's someone you do like. You don't just have to share it with people you don't like. Maybe it's someone you do like, but you know they need the gospel. Finally, do you rejoice in the work of God? Sometimes I don't think we get excited enough when someone receives Christ that we're truly witnessing a miracle of God working in their heart to receive salvation. After these people are saved, there is a giant celebration. We don't see them partying or anything, but they're excited. They're speaking in tongues, the people who are saved. All the people who are with Peter are amazed at what God has done in this situation. Do we take time to rejoice in the work that God has done? We can be kind of negative sometimes in the church. We can think, okay, we don't see people being saved. We don't see our church growing, things like that. But there's so many times when we can look at the plan of God and we can rejoice at what God is doing in our lives through his gospel. So with that being said, may we be faithful to share his gospel to the ends of the earth because it's part of his plan. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this morning. We thank you for the gospel that you have given to us. We ask that you would help us to be faithful to the gospel each and every day. Pray, Lord, for myself that you would just continue to give me opportunities to share the gospel with others, even those who are different than me. Thank you for how you've worked in my life and saved me. Thank you for how you are continuing to work in the life of our church. Help us to respond according to your will. In Jesus' name, amen.